This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. With her is God? I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? That is from Friedrich Nietzsche in his 1880s book, The Gay Science. Find that book and read it. Yes, indeed. Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? James Hansen, former top NASA climate scientist, has a new paper arguing the climate is already committed to extreme changes. It will devastate life on this planet, including humanity. His team finds greenhouse gases have already doubled pre-industrial levels, and the impacts are much greater than we have been told. For example, quote, Global warming in the pipeline is greater than prior estimates. Eventual global warming due to today's greenhouse gas forcing alone, after slow feedbacks operate, is about 10 degrees C. More about that later. Warming in coming decades could be 50 to 100% greater than we have already seen since 1980. If true, that is catastrophic for civilization. Mass extinctions of plants, animals, insects, and sea creatures could follow. The paper is titled simply Global Warming in the Pipeline. It has been submitted for peer review before publication. I just heard back from Jim Hansen. He cannot talk to media about it until the final publication version is ready, even though some people are tweeting about it and there is a Reddit thread. Hansen retired from the NASA Goddard Space Institute in April 2013. The paper is not just James Hansen. There are 14 co-authors, many well-known scientists, some heading up institutions on their own. One non-scientist, independent researcher Leon Simons, was also a co-author. I interviewed him about his findings that sulfur emission controls on ships has changed cloud cover and revealed more warming, and you can listen to that for free from my website at ecoshock.org. That was in last week's show. Given the gravity of this new paper, I did a quick informal survey of three leading climate scientists among my regular email correspondents. One said simply, Hansen and crew are right. Two others agreed with part of the paper, but strongly disagreed with the critical estimation of how hot Earth might get. They say the model used by the new paper to estimate climate sensitivity has already been thrown into doubt by other recent scientific works. We will get to that. Hansen has also been warning of far higher sea level rise than most institutional science, especially reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Hansen says sea level rise just this century could be several meters, like 12 feet or more. It is hard to imagine what a new world that would make. Goodbye, New York, Shanghai, and London. A billion humans might have to move away from the flooding coasts to higher ground if they have higher ground. As Hansen and colleagues write in the new paper, eventual impacts would include loss of coastal cities and flooding of regions such as Bangladesh, the Netherlands, a substantial portion of China, and the state of Florida in the United States. For practical purposes, the losses would be permanent. Such outcome could be locked in soon 
which creates an urgency to understand the physical system better and to take major steps to reduce the human-made drive of global warming, end quote. Again, other scientists of note still object to Hansen's high sea level rise projections for this century. The paper, Global Warming in the Pipeline, is, as it says, about warming. The team has already announced a second big paper is coming, Sea Level Rise in the Pipeline. That paper, he says, quote, presents evidence that continued warming and increasing ice melt can cause shutdown of the overturning ocean circulations within decades and large sea level rise within a century, end quote. Five years ago, the warming in the pipeline paper might have been shrugged off by some. It could be an outlier, a brilliant scientist who has gone too far. But deep within science, there have been objections to the continuous low-end conservative statements by institutions and the IPCC. It seems they were always way behind the changes that we are already experiencing. Should we believe the future predicted in the new Hansen-led paper? Okay, ten years ago, most scientists might have said no, but you need a little history of the chorus of worry and discontent growing within the scientific community over the last two decades. This is how we got here. The pioneers, once again, were science fiction writers. One of the early scientific breakaways was the erratic genius James Lovelock in the UK. After looking over futurecast models at the Hadley Centre, Lovelock predicted by 2100, quote, Billions of us will die, and the few breeding pairs of people that survive will be in the Arctic, where the climate remains tolerable, end quote. That kind of matches the inevitable result of 8 or 10 degrees C warming predicted by Hansen and his crew. And then the first conference, it was called Four Degrees and Beyond International Climate Conference, held at Oxford in 2009. 140 scientists and experts attended. Major speakers included Professor John Schellenhuber, Potsdam Institute, Richard Betts from the Met Office, and Professor Stefan Ramsdorf, again from the Potsdam Institute. He was talking about sea level rise in the four-degree world. Professor David Caroli from the University of Melbourne spoke on wildfire in a four-degree-plus world. About a dozen papers from that conference were published by Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society in 2011. The BBC ran this two-minute piece from that conference, where one scientist says warming of four degrees is possible much sooner than expected, even perhaps by 2060. 7,000 miles away in a lecture hall in Oxford, experts were investigating what happens to the world if climate negotiations fail. According to a Met Office study unveiled here, temperatures could rise far sooner than expected. We're now convinced we could see a global warming of four degrees well before the end of the century, in the 2070s, possibly the 2060s, because of the intensity of our burning of fossil fuels and also the fact that the world's forests and oceans, which are taking up carbon from the atmosphere at the moment, may not continue to do so. What's your own reaction to that? My own reaction to that is, is shock, frankly. You can find my October 2009 show with a digest of Professor Schellenhuber's speech at the EcoShock website. Search our program archives page for 2009. That is still worth hearing. 
A follow-up conference, Four Degrees or More, Australia in a Hot World, was held at the University of Melbourne in Australia in July 2011. It was a doozy. Again on Radio Ecoshock, I broadcast the keynote speech from Joachim Schellenhuber. Here's a quick clip from Dr. Schellenhuber at the Four Degrees or More conference in Melbourne. Now, the interesting thing is now, what would it mean in terms of temperature? And that's why it's so important to go beyond 2100. The climate system is a very slow system, reacting in a highly nonlinear way. So if we would have something like 2 degrees warming by the year 2050, it would stay on the high-end scenario. You see, in 2100, yes, maybe 4 degrees warming above free industrial. That's the theme of the conference. But then you would go further than that, and it would be maybe 7.58 degrees in the year 2300. By the way, sea level will rise, of course, in parallel with that. So a warming of 2 degrees by 2100 may mean 7 meter sea level or 8 meter sea level rise in the year 2500 or something. It's a highly inert system. Now, with the best of all worlds, in terms of climate protection, you would more or less scratch the two degrees line and then slowly, very, very slowly settle back to milder temperatures. But it would still take millennia to approach anything near the pre-industrial level. So it means the planet has been changed for good, more or less, so for the next 50,000 years, when the next ice age is due, already by human action. Then we had the world scientists warning to humanity a second notice. About 15,000 scientists signed on, warning our future was bleak. Humans need emergency action to save the environment we all inhabit. That was in 2017, and I quickly had the instigator, Dr. Bill Ripple, on this show. You can find the link in the blog, ecoshock.org. A continuing stream of scientists began to adopt more extreme language for our common future, calling for emergency action. Another key breakaway point, Dr. Jem Bendel left his sustainability presentations at major international conferences saying none of this is sustainable. Just last fall, a group of eminent scientists released their paper, Climate Endgame, Exploring Catastrophic Climate Change Scenarios. The IPCC was criticized for studying 1.5 degrees of warming when much higher levels are really in the cards. We gravely underestimate climate risks. Now we have to consider global warming beyond 3 degrees C. Our Radio Ecoshock guest was lead author Dr. Luke Kemp. Here's a quick three-minute clip from that show. Each report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change gets worse with more frightening predictions. Why does your group of experts say they may not have gone far enough? A few different reasons. One is that when you look at the simple coverage of temperature rise, it appears that the wider scientific literature, which the IPCC synthesizes and assesses, is focusing more on low-end warming and less on high-end warming. This is based upon two different text mining reports of IPCC assessments 
that I was involved with is published in Earth Future and Environmental Research Letters and led by Florian Yen at the University of Gießen. What this basically means is we use a computer program to pick out the mentions of different temperature rises, 2 degrees, 3 degrees, 4 degrees, etc., and see how frequently these were mentioned and in what context in the reports. And essentially we found that mentions of 3 degrees and above were far lower than the likely probability and they were far lower than 1.5 and 2 degrees. So in short, we appear to be under-researching extreme warming or 3 degrees and above relative to its probability and relative to lower end warming. It's worth noting here that there's other lines of evidence which support this. So popular science books by Mark Linus, so I find a warning, or David Wallace-Wells, The Unhabitable Earth, they've said exactly the same thing, that when they've tried to look into the literature, as you get into higher temperature range scenarios, there's less and less research on what could potentially happen. And similarly, we also did literature sampling, so looking into general databases and found a similar pattern. So that's one way in which we are underestimating, under-exploring climate risk. Another is simply that our risk assessments are too simplistic. The way that risk assessments tend to work in most models and approaches to trying to think about climate damages is they simply tally up individual hazards. So you think of sea level rise or extreme weather events such as floods. You look at each of them in isolation and you make some predictions about the potential damages and costs. Now, first of all, these are usually low end because they tend to be based upon outdated estimates of damages. But additionally, this is not how risk works in the real world. I mean, imagine trying to model the impact of COVID without considering things like healthcare system collapse and the fact that there's little to knock on effects such as lockdowns and hence even strengths in travel, supply chain issues, et cetera, et cetera. You'd be missing the vast majority of the impacts and the vast majority of the actual damages that occur. And we're doing exactly the same thing with climate change by not considering risk cascades, systemic risk, and the ability for individual impacts to reach the scale into systems shutting down. We are basically providing a less realistic but also a far lower estimate of potential climate damages. That was Luke Kemp from the UK, speaking on Radio EcoShock. All of this lends credibility to the extremes found by James Hansen and his colleagues. We need to take this prediction as deadly serious. But let's keep open minds and proper scientific doubt as well. This terrible hot world may not happen, or not for a hundred years or a thousand. Natural systems are notoriously complex and ever-changing, and humans amplify that chaos. No one knows the future for sure. Don't run away to your survival cave just yet. But our guesses are getting more educated as the evidence pours in. So what is James Hansen saying? The new paper, December 2022, Global Warming in the Pipeline, was posted on a publicly available archive server for comment. The team expects experts at this stage, rather than a review in the media like this one. But I also think Hansen, now 80, has taken every step to alert the public directly as soon as he can. Remember, he was arrested at one point in a climate protest. His 2009 book was explicit, Storms of My Grandchildren, the truth about the coming climate catastrophe, and our last chance to save humanity. It carried many of the same themes in the new paper, especially about extreme storms. California, anybody? Puerto Rico? 
and he also talked about more rapidly rising seas. The emphasis on heat seems new, though. But in August 2021, Hansen and cohort Makiko Sato published a temperature analysis at Columbia University's Earth Institute. Top climate reporter Bob Berwin's headline was, The rate of global warming during the next 25 years could be double what it was in the previous 50, a renowned climate scientist warns. Hansen was already pointing to regulations that cut sulfur pollution for a new round of warming. We heard from co-author Leon Simons about that last week. Part of my point? We should discuss this latest paper, even before publication. It's just so serious. And we can do it because we can draw on a series of previously published works by Hansen over the years. I first heard James Hansen speak about warming in the pipeline when I was recording presentations at the 2012 meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science that was in Vancouver. He has been at this for a while. I admit not really understanding his concerns fully until this new paper came out. What is the pipeline? This paper, with the helpful case study by Simons, makes the clearest case yet. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. The concept of the pipeline is simple enough. More energy is coming into Earth than is escaping from it. If scientists add up the extra energy, Hansen says warming should be greater than we have actually experienced. Something is holding back full expression of the heat potential already landed from the planetary system. His team finds the hidden cooling agent in pollution. Sulfates are the main culprit, but not the only ones. Earth is loaded with sulfur. The heavy oil fuel burned by ships contained up to 3.5% sulfur by weight. That's a lot. World goods are transported by a constant stream of large ships. Sulfur goes up the stack into the atmosphere, condensing into small particles that do two things. They reflect sunlight, and they probably seed formation of more low clouds. Both functions cool the surface, acting against the forces of warming and hiding our true impacts. International regulations just cut those sulfur emissions to 0.5% by weight. Sulfur in land-based diesel trucks has also been slashed. That cooling effect has already disappeared, but more sulfates continue to come from older coal power plants. But sulfur pollution is not the whole problem, is it? All sorts of dust, chemicals, and especially black soot are dumped into the air by humans. We have car smog. Giant clouds form over India due to both industrial emissions and a billion smoky cook stoves and heaters. We know from earlier studies by Ramanathan that about 9% less sunlight hit the ground in China in the early 2000s compared to before 1950. India will be driven toward cleaner air soon. I'm told that Europe now receives about 75 more hours of sunshine a year than it did in the 1980s when air pollution was the thickest. All this pollution blocks some sunlight and cools the surface. It also leads to premature deaths for millions of people a year globally. But bit by bit, by popular demand, governments and industry are reducing that smog. Then we will find out what warming is waiting from the changes we have already made in the atmosphere? We will find out what is in the pipeline. 
Now we need to talk about climate sensitivity and the doubling. And here we get into rocky ground. The very high predictions of committed warming now advanced by these scientists is based on two premises. It all has to do with equilibrium climate sensitivity, or ECS. That is kind of a resting point, or end point perhaps, for warming caused by additional greenhouse gases. The scientific standard has been this. What happens when humans double the carbon dioxide from pre-industrial levels of about 270 parts per million? That result depends on the reaction of the whole Earth system, from oceans through land masses and bogs and ice to the very top of the atmosphere. We will call that result the ECS, the climate sensitivity. The doubling. In the first point... Hansen and his colleagues say we have already reached that doubling point. At first, that seems strange. A doubling of CO2 from 280 parts per million before industrial times would be 560 parts per million now. Yet the 2022 measured global average for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is only 417 parts per million. Why are they saying it has doubled? A lot of recent science and governments and conference documents are now talking about carbon dioxide equivalent instead of just CO2. The reality is, humans produce a lot of other warming gases, some of them thousands of times more powerful as warming agents than carbon dioxide. The worst are certain chlorinated or brominated chemicals called halogens. Most of those chemicals never existed before the year 1800. But we cause a lot of nitrous oxide and enough methane to cause up to one-third of the warming now hitting the world. When all of those powerful greenhouse gases are added to the 417 parts per million of carbon dioxide, the atmosphere has already hit a doubling point, Hansen's group says. A few scientists object, because some of those gases do not last long in the atmosphere. The main warming thrust of methane only lasts for about 12 years, for example, if you don't replenish it. So even if we have reached the doubling, it might only be a relatively temporary state, possibly healing within a few decades if those emissions stop. The amount of carbon dioxide, on the other hand, can last thousands of years in the atmosphere. So that should be the real measure of doubling, they think. I'm not qualified to judge but I tend to lead toward the doubling claimed by Hansen and his colleagues. The second part of the new Hansen paper thesis is harder for some top-level scientists to accept. I will relay my uneducated understanding of the problem. It is equilibrium climate sensitivity. If we accept doubling is right now, what should we expect to happen? The science on that is not settled. In the new paper, the Hansen Group calls on results from the latest big climate model, CMIP-6, that showed global temperatures during the last Great Ice Age were far colder than we realized, and that was only around 20,000 years ago. In a note published December 13, 2022, Hansen and Sato say, quote, We were spurred to write this paper in part by papers of Tierney et al. and Seltzer et al., which made a persuasive case that global temperature during the last glacial maximum, LGM, about 20,000 years ago, was about 6 degrees C colder than the Holocene, end quote, and the Holocene is our present time. As they say, 
It was really cold during the peak of the last great ice age, just 10,000 years before humans developed agriculture and cities. Humanity had to survive then near the tropics. This matters a lot. Hansen and Associates also draw on recent work that finds humans have been warming the planet with atmospheric changes over thousands of years due to agriculture and land use change. When they look at the great temperature distance between the glacial times and the 1800s, a relatively small change to the atmosphere, measured in parts per million, made very large changes in the climate on this planet. The ice sheets retreated, and the northern hemisphere became habitat for humans and all sorts of plants and animals. If the climate changes that much, with so few new gases, the system is very sensitive, they argue. That should mean Earth will get much hotter, faster than we thought. It may already be committed to 8 or 10 degrees warming over pre-industrial, they say. Now, these authors do not say exactly when this will happen. Will that extreme warming arrive within the lifetimes of babies born today, or hundreds, or even a thousand years from now? We just don't know. Part may depend on whether we continue to add more greenhouse gases or a whole range of other possibilities. Those may include successful carbon capture, geoengineering to block the sun, an unpredictable run of volcanoes exploding around the Earth, or even an asteroid strike. But they do say, with air pollution cleanup regulations, we should expect warming to develop twice as fast in the next 25 years. Consider the climate chaos already striking around the world. This is ominous and a little frightening. Some well-known scientists are arguing caution about this new paper because of that high sensitivity. Michael Mann says, wait for the peer review, which may modify the new paper. Others find published science showing the estimates of six degrees colder for glacial times is wrong due to a fault in models, particularly the role of clouds in previous models. For example, there is a paper published in Nature on April 20, 2020, titled High Climate Sensitivity in CMIP-6 Model Not Supported by Paleoclimate. They and other papers find the equilibrium climate sensitivity is really about 3.4 degrees Celsius, with an uncertainty ranging from 2.4 degrees C to 4.5 degrees C on doubling. The worst result of that doubling would be a 4.5 degrees C hotter on average, which is absolute disaster for all of us, but it is a very long way from the 10 degrees that Hansen and their colleagues warn about. I am not qualified to say who is right or really how this works. Unfortunately, we may just find out by living it. Either way, we have severely damaged the atmosphere, and there is literally hot hell to pay for it. Under discussion here, is it survivable? Global warming in the pipeline is a big work with more than a dozen authors. There are six parts to the new paper, each of them crammed with science and insight and mixed with a little fear and controversy in my mind. 1. Climate sensitivity. 2. Global warming in the pipeline, i.e. how much warming. 3. Climate response times, how fast. 4. Aerosol climate forcing. 5. Summary of present climate status. 6. Policy Implications 
I will end my review with one short quote from the new paper, Global Warming in the Pipeline, which I think all my scientific guests would agree with. Given the time required for the ocean to warm and ice sheets to shrink to new equilibria, this is not a warming that will be experienced by today's public, but it is an indication of the path upon which we have set our planet. Moreover, we are in the process of setting the planet upon an even more extreme course, as the net human-made climate forcing and global temperature are continuing to rise, even at accelerating growth rates. As long as there is such a large gap between the present climate and the equilibrium climate, the climate system will drive hard towards hotter climate. Doubled CO2 is already a huge climate forcing that will have large impacts if left in play for long. The large global warming in the pipeline today is not widely appreciated. Civilization and its infrastructure are not set up for a two-time CO2 world. We need to reduce human-made climate forcing before it exerts its full influence on the climate system. And that's an end quote from the new paper Global Warming in the Pipeline, led by James Hansen. Science historian Naomi Noreski says James Hansen is a tragic hero figure. Others count Hansen among those brilliant people who can be greatly right and sometimes mistaken. Even the greats can be wrong. I think of British scientist James Lovelock, who just passed away in July 2022 on his 103rd birthday. Lovelock told Congress, way back in the 1970s, that CFCs were harmless when, as we hear in this week's feature interview, they would radiate the world into a great dying level extinction if left untamed. But Lovelock's invention of the electron microscope changed science and all of society. He showed us how to measure global warming gases, amongst myriad other things. His theory of Gaia is the seed for a new religion, even though Lovelock himself later recanted. Collapse and the Gaian Way are coming up next week on Radio Ecoshock. Join us. The final word of this segment goes again to the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche in his Parable of the Madman, written only a few years before Nietzsche himself went mad. I have come too early. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. Friedrich Nietzsche, The Gay Science, 1882 You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Two hundred and fifty million years ago, massive volcanic eruptions caused warming, low oxygen, and acidification in the sea. That wiped out around ninety percent of ocean life, scientists think. It's been called the Great Dying. But what killed the land animals? Widespread extinctions are happening now, so we better know how this can work. A new answer comes with the paper Dying in the Sun, Direct Evidence for Elevated UVB Radiation at the End Permian Mass Extinction. Dr. Barry Lomax is one of the authors. 
He is professor and chair of plant paleobiology at the University of Nottingham, UK. Lomax has been investigating ancient plants and climate for a very long time. From Nottingham, Barry Lomax, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you for having me. It's nice to talk to your listeners about the work that we've been doing. Yes, indeed. Could you introduce us to the extreme events your team studied so long ago? What happened? Yes, so essentially the whole mass extinction event appears to be a biosphere response to a ancient paleo climate emergency. So around about 250 million years ago, the Siberian Traps, which is a large igneous province, erupted. And as part of that eruption cycle, it produced vast amounts of CO2, which drove global warming. And then linked to that, the volcanic eruptions and the volcanic gases were thought to have generated ozone-depleting chemicals, which got up into the atmosphere, destroyed the ozone layer, and then subjected the terrestrial biosphere to an increase in UVB radiation. Do we know how hot it was back then, say, compared to today? It's difficult to say with certainty, but there's been evidence that certainly sea surface temperatures in the tropics would have been up to around 40 degrees um, at Celsius. What is UVB radiation? How does it damage living things? Yes, so UVB radiation is part of light, and most UVB radiation is filtered out by a stratospheric ozone layer which is located about 12 kilometres up from the Earth's surface. Previously, human activity was implicated in catalytic destruction of the ozone layer. So back in the 1980s, scientists noticed that the ozone layer over Antarctica was thinning, and that was a result of the injection of CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, into the stratosphere causing ozone damage. Well, you mentioned volcanic activity, and I noticed a 2019 study led by Hans Brenner looking at volcanic activity during the last 200,000 years, pretty recent, and they found, quote, global long-lasting impact on the ozone layer affecting atmospheric composition and circulation for a decade. Barry, what made your team investigate UVB impact so long ago, 250 million years ago? It's a story that's a long time in coming to fruition. So I was back in around about 2004, I was working at the University of Sheffield as part of a team looking to develop a way of determining past levels of UVB based on pollen and spore wall chemistry. And in 2005, Hank Fisher and colleagues published a paper where they found a increase in the abundance of malformed pollen and spores at the Permo-Triassic boundary, so 250 million years ago. And they suggested in their paper that this was driven by stratospheric ozone, stratospheric ozone depletion driven by the Siberian trap. So we've been trying to find chemical evidence for that event ever since that paper was published. And your work includes several studies using fossil leaves to determine climate. And I first learned about that in a 2008 interview with Dr. Bob Spicer. Can you talk about how this deep time method science tool developed? Yes, intrinsically with plants, they sense CO2 and adapt to the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere by moderating their number of stomata on their leaf surface. So um, when you have 
periods of high CO2, plants adapt to have fewer stomata on their leaf surface. And when you have uh, periods of low CO2, plants have more stomata on their leaf surface. And they do this as a way to kind of balance water use efficiency so they can become particularly efficient. So with high atmospheric CO2, they can have fewer stomata and lose less water but still be able to undergo photosynthesis and grow, whereas if you have a lower CO2 atmosphere, obviously the plant needs to have more stomata to capture the carbon, which becomes less available. As a consequence of that, they need more stomata. So what we've done previously, again, back when this was back when I was doing my PhD in, in the University of Sheffield, we used this method to determine how atmospheric CO2 may have changed as a function of the bolide impact that killed off the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. Well, I'm a little confused. You led a paper in 2019 finding a carbon isotope in plant tissue is not a reliable measure of ancient atmospheres. Does that relate to what we're just talking about? So that, that's a separate method. So the 2019 study was purely looking at a method that other people had proposed where there was the, just purely the isotopic composition of the carbon in the plant tissue that could be used as a proxy for CO2. And that, that doesn't work because there are more things governing the isotopic composition of a leaf than just the CO2. And in the models that they pre, that, that, that had suggested that the carbon isotope composition of the leaf tissue was the driver of CO2, that's the only thing that they took into account. But it, it, it doesn't work because there are more things that control the carbon isotope composition of leaf tissue than just CO2, and when you include those in, they become a much bigger driver of the change than just the CO2. But from a stomatal point of view, that relationship works well. And if you combine stomatal data with isotopic data, you get a very reliable signal. It's just if you use the isotope data on its own, it becomes less useful. So if there was a giant lack of ozone in the atmosphere 250 million years ago, what would have happened to plants and animals? So the main thing that would have responded from a kind of working up through the ecosystem, the paper that we've just published in Science Advances has recorded that plants responded to this ozone depletion event by upregulating their UVB-absorbing compounds to provide them with a degree of protection. So that's one of the mechanisms where plants may seek to survive or, or be less vulnerable. But the other thing that happens when plants are exposed to elevated UVB is that these same compounds which they use as their sunscreen-like protection also makes their leaf tissue, which becomes increasing those compounds, less palatable to herbivores. So you end up in a situation where you have plants that are surviving which are drastically fewer in number their leaf tissue becomes less palatable to herbivores and probably less nutritious. So it can then have the capacity to cascade up through the kind of trophic layers where plant-herbivore plant interactions become limited. The plant tissue becomes less nutritious, less easy to digest. And that, that, that can be a double-edged sword because plants growing today, we know when we've done experiments, when you grow plants at elevated atmospheric CO2, one of the responses that occurs is that you have a dilution in nitrogen. So if your animals need nitrogen 
from the leaf tissue, that becomes diluted down. So not only is there a likelihood that the leaf tissue in itself becomes less palatable, harder to digest, it's also likely to be of a lower nutritional quality. Before the world woke up and took action, scientists and environmentalists warned about the damage from the sun if the protective ozone layer was cut. And and we heard about rabbits going blind in Peru and a lot of impacts. In your new science, were you more concerned about this direct damage or relationships between the UVB radiation and other volcanic effects? The primary aim of the project uh, and the study was to, to determine whether this had happened. So it had been theorized before based on the evidence of malformed spores and then some chemical modeling of the atmosphere suggested that the Siberian traps could have been a source of ozone depletion but until we found the chemical signal that was all kind of first order theory. What we were interested in trying to determine is whether it could have happened because the UVB absorbing compounds that found in the plants and in their pollen and in their spores is a very specific signal telling us about ozone depletion. The Montreal Protocol banned CFCs, the prime chemical damaging the ozone in our atmosphere, but the ozone hole is still there. The latest scientific reports are more optimistic that it may heal. Are we able to compare the state of ozone during the great dying to conditions now? So we can indirectly. So the, the, the paper I just mentioned that I was involved in in around about 2008-2007 looked at how the Siberian traps eruptions would have impacted upon ozone depletion. And what that showed is that we could have evidence depending on the duration of the eruption that the world would have had a very thin, almost global ozone hole. And then more recently, last year, a a group of workers out of the UK published a paper in Nature which did a really elegant modelling study to see what would have happened to the Earth system if the Montreal Protocol hadn't have been enacted. And in that paper, they had this kind of world-avoided scenario where where humanity failed to intercede and stop the production of CFCs. And then they ran that through, and what happened, the end result was a, almost a global ozone hole over the entire world. And their ozone column depth was pretty similar, or the ozone column thickness was pretty similar to our modeling results of the end Permian. And then what they did is they investigated what would have happened to terrestrial vegetation and terrestrial carbon cycling if the global ozone hole had been allowed to develop and what they showed there was there's a huge reduction in the efficiency of the terrestrial carbon cycle and an increase in atmospheric co2 as a result of this global kind of switch off of vegetation through high uvb so we may have just dodged a big bullet leading towards extinction as recently as 1988 yes certainly i mean it, it's one of these things which was um when I read the paper through, it was a really, it was a sobering kind of connection of joining the dots together, thinking about just how kind of lucky we've got, or, or more importantly, just how important environmental legislation is. Because this is this, at the time when the Montreal Protocol was put in place, the linkage between UVB and terrestrial carbon cycling was was unknown, and it was primarily a human health thing. And rather than a kind of thinking about climate change, but yes, it certainly was a sobering reflection. 
Radio Ecoshock. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith from the UK. Our guest is paleobiologist Dr. Barry Lomax. We are tracking what almost killed life on Earth around 250 million years ago. We don't really know a lot about volcanoes even now, but so far, experts are not predicting thousands of years of massive eruptions like the End Permian. Do we know how many large eruptions it would take to damage our ozone layer? Could it happen again? I mean, I mean certainly from the perspective of, uh, of kind of Earth history, if something's happened, it, it, it's likely to happen again. But the time periods of those repeats, uh, I, I simply don't know. And there's another aspect to play here. We only learned in the last century how absolutely toxic mercury is for most plants and animals. How does mercury figure in the process of that ancient mass extinction event? Yes, so um, obviously mercury is a, it is a horrible kind of cytotoxic element which is um, fatal to a lot of organisms. In the mass extinction world, it's been used for as a really good tool to provide us evidence of volcanic activity. So in, in the paper that we just published, we see that our sunscreen compounds are upregulated in the pollen wall coincident with a spike in mercury. And it's that spike in mercury that can tell us about the eruptions. And then we've had colleagues who previously worked on a later mass extinction event, the Triassic-Jurassic boundary, which is 200 million years ago, and there they've shown quite nicely that when we, they have an increase in mercury, they see an increase in abundance of malformed fern spores. So it, it, it's, it's definitely something that's ongoing under research, and it's something that's coming to light. In the lab at the moment, we're running a whole load of mercury experiments to see what happens to plants when they're grown in mercury-contaminated soils see how they function and whether they produce these malformed pollen and or spores. It sounds like this mass extinction event may not have been just one thing, but an unfortunate concatenation of environmental deterioration. Can we pin UVB as the driver of that mass extinction on land, or is it one deadly player among others? I think it's, it's probably part of the problem or part of the driving mechanisms towards extinction. I think it's really difficult to unpick actual drivers because it's a kind of causal relational soup. And it's undoubtedly things are happening and being able to pick out a single driver is very challenging. A couple of years ago, Jeff Benker and colleagues in Berkeley published a really nice paper on pollen from... Uh, pollen malformations from their elevated UVB experiments. And what they showed is that plants seem to survive the incredibly high levels of UVB that they simulated in their experiments, but they induced kind of sterility. So that there was a lack of female cone setting. The male pollen was infertile. So although the UVB didn't kill these plants, it certainly made them less fit and kind of would have had severe impacts on kind of generational timing and, and replacement if you'd had volcanic eruptions to the end Permian going on. I think the, the best guess is something like 60,000 years of volcanic eruptions. That's a really neat way of kind of taking out juveniles and, and kind of stopping forest replacement rather than it being a instantaneous kill mechanism, if that makes sense. 
It does. And as I understand it, the new study depends on an analysis of pollen grains taken in Tibet. How can you know that the radiation event was global rather than a local reading? Yes, so we've been, um, this is the, the next stage of the research is to think about finding the signal in other locations. We, we currently have money from the Human Frontier Science Program where we're starting to look for the signal in different places at different latitudes. So that's the next big thing really is to see whether we can see these signals at other locations to give us a, an idea of how likely the ozone hole is to have developed over kind of a broader geographic time period, or spatially, rather. There have been other theories on the cause of the great dying. For example, Dr. Peter Ward suggested a dying ocean switched to sulfur-based bacteria that emitted clouds of toxic hydrogen sulfide gas. Is there still room for debate on what caused the greatest challenge to life on this planet? The, the challenge is definitely... The event occurred 250 million years ago, even for someone who studies um, geological time, is a long time ago. And, and being able to directly unpack these events is, 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 is difficult. I know Peter's study suggested um, a kind of ocean overturning and degassing of hydrogen sulfide into the atmosphere. From, I think that was done using a very simple 1D chemistry model. And when people used a slightly more advanced model, that overturn didn't occur and we didn't get hydrogen sulfide degassing into the atmosphere. So it, it's one of these things where it's that kind of advancement and kind of both technologies that enable more sophisticated modeling. And then with the instrumentation, the work that we've been doing that enable smaller sample sizes to be analyzed, more specific kind of targeted analysis based on our understanding of plant physiology and plant biochemistry and linking those things together, it could be possible. Again, one of the challenges, though, is just the order of magnitude of the event and just how long the, the ecosystem or the terrestrial biosphere takes to recover. So following the extinction event on land, there's something like a 10 million year coal gap where there's just no forest establishment. If there is forest establishment, those plants aren't being preserved in great detail in the geological record. So it makes the early Triassic a really interesting but incredibly frustrating time to study because undoubtedly things are going on that we kind of, they're of such an order of magnitude that they're affecting how plants particularly are preserved. So we're missing that kind of information. One test of climate models is to run them backward in time to see if they can produce results matching what we know from other sources. And we need these models to plan our future, if we can plan it. Do climate models show pulses of mass extinction? And can your new science help make the models more accurate? So one of the things that we're working on at the moment is, uh, and this is um, stuff that is being very much led by um, Paul Valdez in Bristol, is kind of the next generation of climate models, linking them together, being more... I mean, as computational time has got cheaper, it enables more elaborate models to be run. And then what you can do is ground truth the models against the paleo record so we can compare the proxy data to the model outputs and then kind of iteratively solve between the two to make the models better at reproducing the, the system how do you feel that this really applies to us now? What are we getting from this new knowledge? 
And so it's, it's difficult to place it directly within a, in a framework of kind of current day climate change because the Earth system 250 million years ago was very different to what we find today. I mean, the continents were com completely differently configured. That impacts hugely upon heat flow. There was only one, really one large ocean body, one continent, and those types of things. And how these things fit together impacts on climate. So, but what the work does tell us, it tells us about how the Earth system responds to shocks, tells us about what's resilient, what isn't resilient, and how the system works when we transition from one stable state to another stable state or indeed to an unstable state. So it gives us information on how the Earth system works, which enables us to predict what might happen, but it doesn't give us a clear analogue for the future. From the University of Nottingham, we have been speaking with the Chair of Plant Paleobiology, Dr. Barry Lomax. He is co-author of the paper, Dying in the Sun, Direct Evidence for Elevated UVB Radiation at the End Permian Mass Extinction. Find links to follow up in my show blog published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Barry Lomax, thank you so much for sharing your time with our listeners. No problem at all. Thank you for having me on your show. Cheers. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all. ecoshock.org. This interview with Barry Lomax is a parable about the critical, absolutely essential need for real emergency action to save this planet from rapid climate change. Did you know plants could make their own sunscreen, but animals find that hard to digest? Did you know rising UVB radiation eventually leaves much more carbon in the atmosphere? Plants are miracle chemical factories, aren't they? Some plants manage to create their own sunscreen just to protect their leaves from radiation. Perhaps they evolved that capability many million years before. But most plants died off due to radiation change. That changed the carbon cycle. Remember, the bit of carbon you and I add to the atmosphere daily does not just sit there for a 100,000 years. Our carbon is dragged out of long-term storage deep in the earth. It re-enters the carbon cycle. It may be captured by land plants or sea plants or, or soil organisms or be tossed into the sea. But eventually, that same bit of carbon comes back into the atmosphere. Our additional carbon just adds to the amount of stuff cycling around. More carbon dioxide is found in the atmospheric stage, which is what matters directly for warming. But if a significant number of those carbon-grabbing plants die, the carbon pump weakens and more CO2 stays in the atmosphere. In that way, when the protective ozone layer weakens, global warming is an eventual end result. I always wondered at the connection between the ozone layer and climate change, and now we know. Plants are the intermediate mechanism. When the Montreal Protocol was signed in 1987 and enacted in 1990, the whole reason was to protect human health. Scientists and doctors knew more about radiation, and that would lead to excess cancer, especially deadly skin cancer. They did not know, and nobody knew that a weaker ozone layer would boost global warming. Action to save the ozone layer was taken, just in time, 
without knowing the most powerful threat. That is where we are now with climate change. We know too many reasons why global warming could wreck our lives and our civilization, but probably we only know the half of it. The story of UVB explains we must act on imperfect knowledge. Once, 30 years ago, humans managed to act as one species to save ourselves. We banned ozone-depleting chemicals. But now, again facing a threat as great as our own extinction, we have so far failed to act. We could still save ourselves from outright catastrophe. We still have an atmosphere friendly to humans and all our kindred animals and plants. That nurturing atmosphere is being destroyed in front of our very eyes. We must change fundamentally our way of life, our beliefs and assumptions. Humanity has no golden ticket out of this, out of the long earth history of creation and destruction of species. In fact, we are among the most fragile animals, with strict and limited environmental needs. There are no guarantees, no guardian angels to swoop in, and no easy way out. There is a difficult way out, which is partly the way back to where we were when we were a sustainable species. But there is still a way out, and that is a limited-time offer. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Radio EcoShock this week and caring about our world. Heat is building, records falling, revolution time has come. Suits and limousines, all important people, meet in locked up rooms. From outside our voices Calling save the climate From the streets of Paris Oh yeah And the streets of Paris